This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good afternoon. Welcome to Health and Living with me, T. Xiao Ik. Today, we will be discussing autism among adults and who supports adults with autism. Now, we talk a lot about children with autism or on that autism spectrum disorder. Children grow up to be adults, don't they? So children with autism grow up grow up to be adults with autism. But this logical assumption is not always reflected in reality when we look at adult-centred um, or adult-focused services um, that people may need. And so what you find in the situation today is that many adults living with autism, whether they were diagnosed in childhood or later in life, often do not have access to services that can support them when it comes to specific, specific challenges and needs of adult life. So joining me to discuss adulting with autism today, Dr. Rajini Sarvanandan, consultant, developmental pediatrician for her monthly show. And we also have two autistic professionals who happen to be working in healthcare as well. Dr. Chia Bunyu, she is a medical officer and Cheng Baozong, a licensed and registered counsellor. Thank you so much for joining me today. And um, in the interest of time, Dr. Rajini, maybe I can um, quickly get your thoughts first. As a developmental pete who typically actually works with younger children and teenagers, um, this must be something that you encounter when the children grow older um, and they and their parents are probably thinking about that transition into um, young adulthood. Um, how do you sort of work with the young people and teenagers with autism for that transition? Um, <clears throat> you know, when we talk about preparing for adulthood, it, it starts even from when children are very young. And, and we often talk about life skills, right? Developing life skills. Um, we always just only think about life skills as being able to take care of yourself. But we forget that um, the little humans that we deal with grow up to be adults who actually have to live in society. So often when parents um, um, are seen in, in our clinics or when I do meet parents, you know, I talk to them about not just thinking about the here and now, not about which school the child must go into, what grades the child must be um, achieving, et cetera, but working towards building skills, yeah? I think our challenge often is the period of adolescence where um, uh, children are going through a lot of changes in their physical self as well as um, their mental needs and um, this quest for independence at the same time, which for a lot of parents who've uh, invest a lot of time with their children from being very young, being worried about their children, um, letting go can also be detrimental to moving on to adulthood. And, and that's often a big, big um, challenge for parents, I think, especially when they have children who have uh, different needs. So in that transition, we're not only dealing with the individual who is a child or a young person, but the parents as well and how they form that support system, right? Yeah. That scaffolding. Yeah. 
So, um, Dr. Chia and Bao, if I could turn to you now, and perhaps you could um, share with us a little bit of um, background first on yourself and your experience of neurodivergence. Dr. Chia, um, very briefly, would you be able to share your diagnosis and when were you diagnosed? Or Bao, perhaps I could um, get you to start first. Yeah, thank you, Sherry. Um, um, first, I am. I was diagnosed in 2020 when I'm at the age of 27. I was formally diagnosed with autism. Um, and it was something that uh, we went through a tough time because uh, I'm based in Penang, but there's no access to diagnosis as an adult because no private hospitals or any centers have necessary tools to diagnose adult autism, especially uh, with the cases of mine whereby we've been masking a lot, knowing psychology and everything. So I had to pursue it in a private center down in KL, and it cost me a few thousands, which is for B40, it's actually something very expensive. But um, yeah, but, but knowing I'm autistic comes way before, it's just due to lack of accessibility of diagnosis. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And when you say um, knowing that you're autistic, um, were there, um, was there a recognition in yourself when you were growing up uh, of what made you neurodivergent uh, compared to your peers, perhaps, who were neurotypical? I think that, I think the biggest uh, sign was when I was entering primary three when I transferred school and you really feel a gap uh, you're prone to getting bullied. You don't understand a lot of things. And slower, uh, slowly, we kind of get used to it. It's not that there's no issue, but you're so used to getting bullied. You're so used to getting being misunderstood, getting targeted by teachers. And it was until when I was in 2015, when I graduated with my undergrad, I was volunteering. And I'm like, this kid, I think, you know, it was a respite program. And I'm like, this kid is so familiar what he did. And he was actually what we call steaming, uh, self-regulating. And I'm like, hey, I do that from time to time too. And I noticed this, uh, I do that a lot when I was children. And that, that, that came the journey of self-discovery. But I was from a very medical point of view. I was a professional in uh, psychology and in counseling. And, you know, my understanding was very limited and it's still developing. It takes time to develop. And my identity, understanding my neurodivergent condition, me being an autistic person still continue to develop up until date. And Dr. Chia, um, your own personal journey of discovering your neurodivergence? Um, so basically, I was, uh, I was uh, talking about autism per se. I'm actually more of self-diagnosed. I'm not formally diagnosed and I decided not to get a formal diagnosis. Um, I was first given a diagnosis of ADHD at the age of um, probably I think 34, in my mid-30s now. In my mid-30s, I was given the diagnosis of ADHD, followed by Erlen syndrome. And then later on, I got the diagnosis of dyslexia. And subsequently, I further explored it and found out that I do have autism um, symptoms. And, but I didn't further proceed with the diagnosis. Um, all because uh, my uh, history of getting my previous diagnosis was actually quite a difficult and um, not a very nice thing to actually get those diagnoses. I went into a major depression after that and I literally have no one to talk to and 
So I was also afraid that if I were to get a formal diagnosis of autism, will I go into another bout of a major depression? But if, um, but even though I said so, um, what happened is that I feel that it is also pointless for me to get a formal diagnosis um, because I don't think I'll get the amount of support that I actually get uh, that I actually need. So why would I say that? It's because when I was diagnosed with um, ADHD, Erlen syndrome, dyslexia, and when I actually went on for my um, master's degree, I actually submitted my formal diagnosis to ask for extra time for exams. But what happened was that university, the dean actually wrote back to me to say that if I couldn't cope, um, he actually asked me to drop subject instead of giving me an additional time. So basically, um, when I went through all this diagnosis, um, I actually met two psychiatrists, one child psychiatrist, one child development specialist, and three clinical psychologists. And all of that, there are three of them, no, actually four of them, who actually told me that I do have autistic traits. And from there, I went on to read about all this DSM-5 and all that, and I realized that I do have autism. So I don't really think I will actually want to get a formal diagnosis. Of course, when I went for my um, diagnosis uh, with the first psychiatrist who diagnosed me with ADHD, um, basically there was no assessment done. It was just a brief history taking. And then he just straight away told me that, do you want to start on this medication called Ritalin? And he told me that you can focus better. Um, it peaks at four hours. And uh, if you plan to study at night, you take it four hours before that. And then after that, you can focus. But uh, he did tell me the side effects. But what I feel that he did not tell me was what is the half-life of the medication. So ended up, I couldn't sleep properly. And he also did not tell me my diagnosis. And the worst thing was he did not actually got the history from me that prior to seeing him, I actually had insomnia for one month. I did not offer that um, the symptoms to him because I feel that if I were to tell him, I have insomnia, he probably just prescribed me some medication and it doesn't treat the root cause of my insomnia. All right. So, yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing, Dr. Chia. And um, Dr. Rajini, just very quickly before we go for a break, um, what we hear is that there's one a, a formal pathway to a diagnosis is one thing. Um, but there are so many challenges inherent in that, not just in terms of accessing um, the uh, professional or the tools for diagnosis, but uh, what that diagnosis actually means for this individual in terms of support as, and discrimination from what we hear, right? Yeah. Um, gosh, uh, I guess that, would, that was very hard to hear, Shawik. Um, you know, I work with children and families and um, and very often we do see that there are also challenges. And I think especially for those who have milder symptoms in getting that diagnosis. And I can tell you very honestly, even as a person working in this line of work, um, it, it's a learning process even for us. For example, diagnosing autism in girls, you know, um, 15 years ago, my gut feeling told me, yes, this child has autism, but the, the tick boxes or the scores didn't add up. So all I could do was tell parents, your child has 
traits of autism or signs and symptoms, but according to the DSM four or five, he or she does not fulfill the criteria, but these are the things I'm worried about. And I think, you know, Dr. Chia's um, journey um, is, is a sad one to hear because you're also in the medical line, right? Um, and But I think it, it goes to show that we are still in society and in, in the medical profession and even in the mental health professional, amongst the mental health professionals. And I'm not just talking about doctors, I'm talking about psychologists and counsellors, etc. We still have a long way to go um, in terms of trying to first, not even make a diagnosis, but be aware that not everybody fits into a box that we know about yeah am i making sense mm -hmm. yeah that that um things cannot just fit into there's no one standard answer mm -hmm. yeah like we're made to do in school where you only get marks if you answer it in this way that doesn't work when we talk about mental health issues yep and neurodivergence and we'll, neurodivergence we'll go for yeah. a very quick break and come back to get more um, thoughts and insights from Dr. Chia Bun Yu medical officer Chung Bao Tong a licensed and registered counsellor who are both autistic adult professionals uh, and of course consultant developmental paediatrician Dr. Rajini Sarvanandan we are discussing adults with autism and the kind of support that they need uh, stay We'll be right back on Health and Living, BFM 89.9. Welcome to Health and Living with me, T. Shao Ik. On the show today, joining me via Zoom are consultant developmental paediatrician, Dr. Rajini Sarvanandan, medical officer, Dr. Chia Bunyu, and a licensed and registered counsellor, Cheng Bao Zhong. Uh, both Dr. Chia and Bao are sharing from the perspective of being adults with autism. And as well as um, there are some interesting insights uh, of uh, working in the healthcare space as well and what it means. Uh, what are the challenges in um, being a neurodivergent adult working in healthcare? Some additional challenges there that um, I hadn't realised, um, you know, would be um, would surface um, for people. Doctor Chia, you know the um, you talked about sort of going through a difficult. Uh, and pretty complex, challenging uh, diagnostic journey um, with the different issues from ADHD to Erlen syndrome, dyslexia and um, autism. Now, just, I guess, looking at your own experiences from childhood, growing up into adulthood, um, what changes and challenges did you experience, especially as you, I guess, talk about leaving the structured kind of childhood, um, you know, when you're a child, things are very structured for you, school um, expectations and things like that. And being an adult comes with a different kind of uh, responsibilities, expectations. What were the changes and challenges that you experienced and struggled with? I guess the main thing that I realised uh, when I was growing up is um, basically communication. So... I feel that it's very difficult for me to express what I want to say. Um, and many times people will misinterpret it or people just don't have the patience to finish listening to what I have to say. So, and a lot of times when I want to tell something and when the thing doesn't go to that person, 
I tend to get very stressed up and I'll end up um, self-harming myself. So along the way, I have been doing this since, uh, since I was a kid. And it took quite some time for me to realize that. And it took more than a decade for me to be able to control my anger and my, um, yeah, basically my anger to and stop this self-harm thing. Mm. Um, but of course, other things are basically um, during my university time, um, it's always difficult for me to pass exams. So making friends is basically not really sort of problem for me when I look at it at that time because all I need is extra time to focus and study. So basically in my primary school, I have only one friend. Uh, my secondary school, I can't remember how many friends I have, but basically I don't keep in touch with any of my friends. So when I enter university, it's also the same. So it's just like most of the time I need time to study. So I don't really bother so much about um, have, I mean, making friends and things like that. So, but I do have a lot of fear um, from home to my university life to my work life as well. A lot of fear, a lot of um, um, untrusting people, um, a lot of social anxiety. Um, so basically, like social anxiety can be somebody that I've been seeing every day at work um, for six months. And when the person asks me to go out together, I'll still have a major social anxiety. Or if I go to a new place that I have no idea that um, how is that structure and all that, I actually have a very bad social anxiety. Mm. Yeah. And of course, I'm also an introvert. And uh, Bao, is there anything else you'd like to add as well in terms of your own challenges, changes in that transition, especially into adulthood? I think nothing much changed because I was given the freedom uh, that I much needed since I was adolescent. Uh, of course, my mom was like, kind of like, okay, you know what, let Bao be Bao, let just let him do what he wants, let him go along with schedule. He doesn't want to go out, it's fine. But, you know, she definitely set some boundary and said, okay, I really need you to pass your Malay and your English. So you don't like tuition, but this too, I'm sorry, you really need to go because that's a fundamental of being uh, Malaysian and you need to. Uh, if you want to go for tertiary education. But if all things fail, it's fine. 18 years old, go to work. Don't have to, uh, you can't study, it's fine. It's totally okay. But um, fortunately and unfortunately, so there were, uh, my result was okay. I can perceive my study. Everything, I think that it was smooth. I was okay with my study. I'm good at it. But I was, I don't have friends. I'm cursing at everybody. You know, I'm calling everybody mean stuff that... Uh, no friends as well, go first. And I'm, I'm still surprised that there are still people who contact me and say, hey, you know what, if you come by, just let's hang out. But so personally, I don't... Back then, I guess that I don't really have friends. <laughs> so, um, but other than that, I don't really, you know, very particular about friendships. I'm just more about work, 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 do, 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 and just achieve. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And... Uh... For both of you as um, adults navigating a professional workspace as well, uh, do you find that there are stereotypes um, that are used against you that, you know, make it then even more difficult for you to reach out for support or be open? Dr. Chia? Um, for me, basically, I don't disclose myself. Uh, reason is because um, 
um, I am. I mean, without disclosing, basically, people also labeled me. So basically, as a child, when I grow up until now, I've been labeled by five words. So that is stupid, slow, stubborn, lazy, and weird, which I really hate those words. And basically, I have a lot of fear, a lot of trauma with all the past experiences before I got my diagnosis. And also, besides all this name calling, um, there's also a lot of gaslighting, backstabbing. Uh, so I'm basically a scapegoat for everyone. Um, like the black sheep in the family, like whether it's my biological family or whether it's a workplace family. So I'm always the targeted one. So I guess if I were to disclose myself, it may actually make things worse. Because uh, there are some good friends I did sort of tell them, but ended up, I find it very tough because when they see me down the corridor, they'll be yelling, hey, autistic person, you know, that kind of thing. And I find it like, okay, thank you. You don't have to make an announcement. So, um, yeah, so basically, mm. yeah, I... I I must say I'm really um it's it's difficult to listen to as as Dr. Rajini said earlier it's difficult um I can't imagine how difficult it is to experience it firsthand and I'm also shocked that this happens in the very system that is supposed to be providing the care and support right Dr. Rajini you know hearing these kinds of experiences it makes me think what value are we giving people when we say a diagnosis will help them to get services, intervention and support? It's Sherry, um, I think, you know, I've said this before. In Malaysia, a diagnosis um, helps you get some services. It in, I think increasingly... It is less harmful um, if you go by balance of advantage versus disadvantage for a child to get a diagnosis uh, because there's a little bit more awareness about it in children. Awareness does not mean understanding. And um, as Dr. Chia says, there's always misconceptions about, you know, uh, if you have that diagnosis of autism, oh, you won't be able to go to a normal school. You know, that's the first thing that everybody says. And when we talk about it, um, but what I'm saying is, unlike other countries where when you have a diagnosis, you know, funding comes in, you are almost guaranteed support. Yeah. And, and I know increasingly in some of those countries, it's getting harder with the economic situation they, the way it is now. But but still, it sort of gives you more advantages than we do here. What I'm seeing for children who are getting diagnosis later. Yeah. So those who are in upper primary or as they're heading into the <clears throat> adolescent years. And quite often, many of these are not children who see me from when they're very young, but they're actually their siblings or, you know, cousins, is then sometimes that is a disadvantage um, because um, in some settings, people are actually saying, you know, teachers say, oh, that's just your excuse, um, you know. Um, so it can be challenging. And I, I also see it in adults, yeah, parents who then say to me, I think I need help. I've been living with this for a long time. And it gets even harder, higher up you go. Because there's always this assumption, you kind of made it so far. You've got 
autism or ADHD or, you know, you can't be different. Um, are you just using this as an excuse? And that still happens. And as much as people think doctors are a caring profession, we are not. We're cruelest to those within the system. Mm. Yeah. So... Um. Just the impossibly unnatural high standards um, uh, towards um, your fraternity. Uh, Bao, I haven't really had a chance to um, ask you about any aspects of stereotyping or discrimination. And also if you could um, use that uh, to move on to sharing about what kind of support do you think would help adults with autism? Well, Shari, uh, that's very, very interesting thing. But uh, in the medical field, of course, because all of us here are on the medical, um, there's a very, very high discrimination, you know, because it's also how what we call this medical model. We see uh, autism as a defect, as someone inadequate instead of someone who is different. And there is where this co comes to understanding of, you know, uh, many autistics or any, any neurodivergent will be very, very hesitant to come out and declare or even get their formal diagnosis because why? There's no protection and you're going to face what when you face, you're going to face what I face. And frankly, I'm same like uh, uh, Dr. Chia in that I don't disclose in my workplace, despite how widely I talk about it in the psychology field, um, in the mental health space, in, in online, but I did not disclose at my current uh, healthcare facilities because that's how much uh, it is harming your career and harming your validity of what you assess because most of the time when uh, doctors refer patients to me about mental health condition, behind it, I'm like, yeah, a lot of it, um, there, there's definitely a neurodivergent condition. So a year of, let's say, 100 uh, people that's referred to me for counseling, you're going to look at 10% underlying neurodivergent co uh, conditions in my clinic. So, but again, it's like, they say, what now? You know, what now? I'm like, well, we're going to move to understand about yourself. We're going to move to structuring your day. Do you need the diagnosis? Uh, well, fairly say you've been experiencing all your life as an autistic person or ADHD or, um, and the diagnosis is just a name. And it doesn't sound like it's going to protect you in your current situation. I'm not sure. What do you think? They're like, yeah, it's going to lead me to more discrimination. Then we're like, okay, let's move on to a personal thing instead of getting a diagnosis. And what support do we need? First, I think that we really need to listen with an open-minded and stop assuming and stop, you know what? Autistic person, engineer. Autistic person, engineer. Um, I think that's very, very harming. Uh, codings and all this stuff. That's very, very assumption. Uh, that's also very stereotypical, you know. Okay, he's an autistic person. Our job employment, we're going to hire him as an engineer. You're going to kill me with engineering, to be honest. And really listen to that person. Individualize the support. Go along their interests, not forcing them into the interests. Just a little bit sharing. I'm into mental health space because also it's something I cultivated along the years. My interest, something I work on. And it worked well with me also because uh, as a counsellor, we are seeing people one-to-one. -one. So there's no disturbances, the, the there's limited distractions. And it works along with my uh, audio hypersensitivity. Uh, my proprioception, my vestibular, in between the sessions, I can walk in the clinic. I can have a team to talk to the doctors. I can learn about medications and like, as a doctors, I think we need to do this together. Can we work along? So I think that if... 
I you put the autism into the picture and people start discriminating, it doesn't go along to the benefit of my client as well. So it, it's kind of sad, you know, we, we keep talking about disclosure, disclosure, but uh, the, the space, the, the, the society is not protecting us from uh, discrimination and also the, the negative label that comes along with it, the archive understanding about autism as someone little, which is uh, stopping us from getting diagnosis and stopping us from disclosing. Mm. Because give me a benefit and I'll give you 10 deficits. Mm. And Dr. Chia Bao has shared about how he sort of builds in his coping mechanisms and he's found a space for himself that, um, you know, uh, doesn't present too much challenges considering um, the traits um, that he has. For yourself, um, how have you tried to cope? And, you know, if you, I guess, look at other adults with autism um, who are in need of, you know, that same kind of sort of guidance or figuring out how to just, you know, I, th- I think Dr. Rajini, you said it earlier, right? how to just live in society. Um, wh- what are some of your, th- of your thoughts? Um, basically, how I cope is, um, I always feel that I need help. But unfortunately, I have no idea what type of help do I need and how or who I can ask help from. Um, so, but um, what I realize is that um, when I'm very exhausted, let's say um, I run clinics in the morning and after a lot of talking, I actually have some quota. After that, I just don't feel like talking. So what happened is uh, most of the time, my lunch time will be alone. So then there's time that I'll actually try to recharge myself. Or in between, if let's say in a very busy schedule, they have to go to the ward, I have to go, I have to be on call and things like that. I will probably just go to a toilet, sit for five minutes there. And then we'll come out. So I'll, I'll sort of like retouch myself or probably just find a place that I can just sit and just stare blankly and just zoom out for some time, like a few minutes. And then I'll continue back my work. But of course, on uh, certain days that was very overwhelmed, what I did is when I go back home, I'll just stand under the shower for at least 30 minutes and I'll just literally cry. So after crying, I'll feel much better. Um, yeah, I guess uh, those are a few things that how I cope actually but of course um, trying to help other people actually uh, makes me happy not to say happy like, like sort of um, yeah makes me like in a way that oh I, I I still can help another person who is similar to me that kind of things so but when I meet patients who are adult autistic I don't disclose myself as well but I'll try to actually introduce them to support groups and um, send them some articles or whatever things that may be helpful for them. Mm. Yeah, so I guess those are things that I do. But of course, in between, if I have really extra time, then I'll probably just do some parts, draw something. Or when I'm very angry, I'll just draw my emotions out um, to let it go kind of thing. Or I'll just play with puzzles or Legos. All right, we will go for another quick break and continue this discussion on the other side. Uh, on the show with me today, Dr. Rajini Savanandan, consultant, developmental pediatrician, Dr. Chia Bun Yu, medical officer, and Cheng Baotong, a licensed and registered counsellor. We'll be right back on Health and Living, BFM 89.9. 
Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Shaoik. My guests on the show today, Dr. Rajini Salvanandan, consultant developmental pediatrician, and uh, along with Dr. Chia Bunyu, medical officer, and Cheng Baozong, a licensed and registered counsellor. Dr. Chia and Bao are sharing about um, being autistic adults, working professionals, uh, and we've been talking about the challenges of um, transitioning from childhood adolescence to adulthood, as well as navigating the pressures, expectations, um, you know, stresses of being a working adult uh, and being neurodivergent. Um, that's just part of your identity. That is who you are. Um, but, you know, there, there are so many challenges that come with it because of the way society views um, neurodivergence. And Dr. Rajini, I was wondering, you know, on hearing Dr. Chia and Bao's experiences again, um, a lot of it comes from misunderstanding, um, exclusionary uh, sort of attitudes and discriminatory attitudes towards um, people who are neurodivergent. What can we do better? Where have we gone wrong? What can we do better? And even in terms of um, simple support services, um, for people living with autism? Um, <clears throat> Shari, I'm assuming you're talking about more at, um, neurodivergent people who are adults um, yes. per se. So what I see in a lot of um, uh, families that I work with um, who have children who are neurodivergent is as they get through adolescence, there's a lot more anxiety. Yeah, Anxiety about the future anxiety about how they're going to live, work, etc. Not knowing what is there um, out there for their children. So not just the child, but the parents as well. And this is where support needs to come in. Yeah, support in schools, especially in secondary schools, because there are a lot of children in secondary schools who are undiagnosed. Yes, we know that. Um, they've slipped the net and they've managed to get so far, but the challenges of adolescence comes in and we seem to be missing uh, missing out on helping many of these children. And hence, we see, we read the, the headlines of, you know, suicide, etc. And I think rather than investing a lot of money in just diagnosing and so-called treating as a medical condition, we should look at supporting um, young people where they need the support. So if that means in schools, in the community, maybe through support groups or youth groups, um, if it means supporting families uh, in terms of finding direction for their children in terms of education, because not every, every child is going to be able to work and study within that system of exams. I mean, you know, listening to both uh, Mr. Bauer and uh, Dr. Chia, I, I asked this question in the chat. It sounds like studying helped you mask, sort of, you know, you focus so much on just studying, so much so when you're out there in the real world facing the challenges that require a lot more, how do you, pay, how do you put it? You know, when once you leave school, there are bigger challenges um, that it 
that's when it hits you and you may not have the skills. And and that's what I'm hearing from a lot of the, the so-called milder children or in the older days, people used to call them higher functioning children. I don't hear from parents. And then when they're 14, 15, 16, I suddenly get an SOS call or SOS email saying, my child is struggling and I don't know how to help them. Hmm. So I think we need to put support in where support is needed first. Hmm. And Bao, you wanted to talk about a little bit about parental approaches um, when it comes to raising children with autism and, and providing that support. Um, and earlier we did say that uh, in any for any individual autism. You know, we are talking about the scaffolding uh, that, that that provides them that support as well. What are your concerns, or perhaps, what have you learned from your own experiences and of others with autism when it comes to a constructive parental approach to autism? Well, uh, Shalik, this is something that I think I often look into my mom uh, and also look into who I am and also look into other autistic adults and also those that I grew up with, not knowing that they are autistic, but they are actually diagnosed. Is that, I guess, uh, to put the context, my mom is a single mom who is a widow since I was five or six years old. So she she's a strict person. She's a very traditional teacher, right? Traditional Chinese mother, tiger mom. But at one point into high school, she realized that, you know what, that doesn't work. All this caning, all this retining, all this forcing and things, it just doesn't work. And she really, I think she had the space to really sit down with herself and just say, you know what? This don't work. Why am I doing it? Why am I fitting him into the box or the system? And that was actually the period of high school that I was I have a lot of uh, absenteeism my marks were very very bad um but that enabled me to so-called heal actually to really go into computer games and stuff she hated it um not saying that is the only way but i'm just saying that that was where i get my repertoire i keep play games it's the same game all over and i really be myself and really regulate after school and really all these tuitions that are uh more stressing me out she really listened and just slow it down. I think that the key point that I get it from my mom a lot is that look your child as where they are, not the expectations, not all these conceptions. And being a Chinese person or Asians, especially, you know, we have this ideal child, you know, you need to be this or that, lawyer, doctors. And she just let me be me. When I say, you know what, I want to study there. She's like, okay, let's go. And I say, you know what? I changed my mind halfway. Uh, I'm going to do this. She's like, okay, let's go. But you just be wary. This career is not going to give you a lot of money, but it's something meaningful. And, and my mom really just meet me as where I am as I get into adulthood. And that's where I cultivate of who I am and how I really affect my job really is that I really see whoever will come for me to counseling. I see my clients as where they are. I don't put all this judgment and, you know, you know, to be this, you got to be that. No, just mm. meet them as where they are. Mm. And that influenced my worldview you know, and I really always, when parents come to me for consult and everything, I just say, look, this is where she is, this is where he is. See them as where they are. And as a parent, I know this is devastating, all right? Parents, anxiety and everything, that is a parent-human instinct. But hey, your child is a human too, and it's important to see them as a human. Yep. 
And Dr. Chia, any thoughts on um, how parents can balance between supporting and, uh, you know, sort of that that uh, view that Bao took, Bao's mom took? Okay. Um, for me, basically, I um, for me, I come from a very strict family as well. Um, I think I live with a lot of trauma, and I don't really have any good memories um, from that from my childhood. But what I can say is basically. Um, I, I do realize that a lot of parents would be quite controlling about what their children does. So they'll arrange everything for their children and things like that, which my mom still does for me up until now, which is very, very frustrating to me because I don't get to choose what I want. I don't get to decide what I want to do or what I want to buy and things like that. So I guess um, I guess it's okay if parents were to allow their children to make mistakes and learn from it because uh, we will learn from our mistake eventually. But what is more important is for the parents to be there with them, to support them in a way and not to just tell them, no, you shouldn't do this, no, you shouldn't do that and don't actually get them a chance to try certain things and just force them to do what the parents want. So I think that is actually quite sad and um. That's how I was being brought up. So I do not know a lot of things about myself. I do not see myself as, as who I am. And whatever people tell me, I just believe that, yes, I am stupid. Yes, I am dumb. You know, I am not talented and things like that. Yeah. And I guess, Dr. Rajini, those kinds of um, parenting approaches would be even more harmful for people who are neurodivergent, I suppose, when they don't fit into this, this box. Yeah, I think, you know, um, very much so. And but it's hard, right? It's hard also. I'm also looking at it from the perspective as a parent, when the people around you, especially, uh, put that pressure on you. Yeah. And um, and deviating away from what is seen as norm, uh, I can be very... Um, parents can be put under a lot of pressure. But this is what I say to parents. At the end of the day, the decisions you make with thinking about your children in mind, if you have the right intentions, it's okay if it doesn't work out. And you say sorry, just as, you know, your child will say sorry if they they make a mistake. And and as Dr. Chia says, letting them fall, helps them learn how to pick themselves up and it's a lesson in itself yeah because if you don't and if you only strive for perfection for your children or you want things to go the down the right path then they will never learn how to how to get up again and how to you know problem solve and find another way out yeah. And and for neurodivergent people, this is very these are very important lessons to learn. Um, because failure is often harder to take, um, especially when you have anxiety around failure. Yeah. Um as we wrap up this conversation though, can I get some final thoughts from each of you? Uh just very quickly to uh something that you'd like to leave our listeners with, Bao? I, I think that really is that um, with this all, all of this anxiety as a parent and everything, I think that the most important thing that we always need to remember is that your child is a human too. 
uh, and one day they'll grow up to be an adult and they will have to make a lot of decisions for themselves. And this is where whereby we need to really, really uh, cultivate. It's not just about A, B or C. You get what I mean? It's not about, you know, you must fit into the system or not. It's most, it is very, very important for parents to remember that it's about the cultivation of identity of who you are, knowing where you are in the society, about protecting yourselves. It's about uh, why you are who you are because of your identity. And these discriminations are not okay, but it's not something that uh, we need to remember. It's not us. It's really about the world. It's about the society being discriminatory. And also for parents that really be really, really mindful because all the concepts show parenting that we understand comes from our parents, which also come from our parents' parents, which may not be realistic to the current era anymore. Mm. Mm. Dr. Chia, any final thoughts? Um, I would actually I would actually like to ask everyone to be kind. I mean, I'm not asking for sympathy or empathy towards people like us. Because uh, we, we don't really want that as well. But what we want, I believe, is basically for people to actually treat us like another human being with respect and don't just judge us for our, our limitations, our weaknesses, or our flaws that you see, but try to look beyond us because um, when you see our hidden talents, when you actually know us in person, we are actually mindless people. Absolutely. Um, Dr. Rajini, I don't know if you can top that. Any final thoughts? No, I can't top that. Um, I'm going to leave with something that my child made me ponder about. Uh, and she said, results don't define who I am. I am because I am a person and there's more to me than just results. And that really made me stop and think. And, you know, now what I say to parents is the diagnosis doesn't define your child. Your child is still a child. He is still a person. And part of the journey is helping your child and you discover who this person is. And, you know, celebrating all the good things and working through the bad things that come along the way. Thank you very much for sharing your thoughts today. Dr. Rajini Saranandan, Consultant, Developmental Pediatrician, Dr. Chia Boon Yu, Medical Officer, and Cheng Baozong, Licensed and Registered Counselor. We've been discussing support for adults with autism. This has been Health and Living on BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.